2 Peter 2, 1-3, but false prophets are also among the people of God in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you who will slyly slip in destructive schools of thought, even denying, refusing the master who purchased their freedom, bringing upon themselves imminent destruction. And many will follow their ways of unprovoked violence, and because of them, the way of truth will be slandered. And in their greed, they will exploit you, making merchandise out of you with stories they've made up. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Thanks, Miss Pace. Or Mom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, you guys doing all right this morning? Woohoo! Yay! It's kind of dark in here, isn't it? Yeah, a little, little dark. Maybe we just needed to, to calm things down a little bit. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Second Peter chapter 2. As Chess said, um, we're going to continue um, working through this, this wonderful little letter of Peter's um, in which he's writing kind of as his last breath to his family of faith um, in hopes that they would uh, build well on the foundation that he's already laid for them, right? That we've said um, before that this is not, um, this letter's not written in isolation. It's built on Peter's interaction, his teaching with the, the men and women of, of the, to whom he writes now. He believes something true of them, that the foundation that's been laid in Jesus, they hold fast to, that they long for, that they desire in themselves to see grow up into fruition. And so as one who's about to depart, he longs to help ensure that even when he's gone, that what they build upon the foundation of Jesus will be proven to be not straws and hay that's burned away, but but jewels and fine stones and gold that, that, that Paul talks about in his letter to the Corinthians, right? That, that what they're building, their life in Jesus, actually is full life, a forever life, a life that isn't just for the moment um, caught in faith or, or, or even goes in and out of the cycles of believing and disbelieving, of doubting and walking in um, the fruit of the gospel, but rather is like one rooted, as the psalmist says in Psalms 1, like a tree rooted next to the stream of living water that always bears fruit in every season, right? Like that's what he longs for. That's why he writes this letter. And he writes this letter to a people who he believes has this foundation, and so he wants to help ensure that, that, that they get to see what it is that they long for. And so the first chapter really was this chapter um, that kind of outlined for us the really kind of the simplicity and the straightforwardness of what the gospel is, like that Jesus has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, that there isn't more for us to gain. This life is not a quest of us trying to get to this place where we can now have it all and we've arrived, but rather we have been given everything in life so that in life we might flourish and live life to the fullest. Even in the midst of a world that seems to pull us away from that, to speak against that, to, even in the midst of the difficulties of that reality. And so because that's true, we supplement our faith. We, we seek out the, to add, make every effort to, um, to take possession of those qualities that ensure that we get to experience the fullness of life that Jesus offers us. That's what drives us. That's what motivates us. That's what moves us forward. That's what allows our life of faith to be rich, to persevere, to not just ebb and flow with the flow and ebb and flow of the culture in the moment, but to be a part of this grander story that's a sure story, right? A true story. And I'm, I'm 
making some noises back behind me. But what we've seen, like, and what we would argue, and what Peter has said, and what makes Peter's second letter a little different, is he doesn't use some of the typical language that we think of when we think of these things. He doesn't go into the laws of Scripture and the rules and the regulations and the rhythms of faith and all those kind of things. He kind of assumes those to some degree. But he's painting a picture of a way of life. And we know that to be true, right? We know, like we've talked about this as a faith family for years now, that more than rules and regulations that are ever repeating or, or rituals and rhythms that recycle through the ages, faith, that precious thing obtained, received by divine gift, by the right relating of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, is a way of life. Right? Faith is a way of life. A manner of being and doing and thinking. A way of behaving, desiring, and acting that is distinctly shaped by the one who owns us and honors us. By the one who owns us and honors us. The way of life after him. That's why even in the psalm that, that Sam read for us, a psalm that, by the way, Psalm 119 is all about the rules and regulations, right? The rituals and the rhythms, how much there's a longing for the law of God, the precepts of God, the, the, the righteousness of God, all these things, these teachings of God. Even in that psalm that values what we might kind of condense faith to being, rules, regulations, rituals, and rhythms, even in that psalm, the psalmist knows that my ways matter to God. That when the psalmist, when he's told to God his ways, God answered him. When he said, God, like in my sorrows, my way of living that doesn't quite live up to the way that I expected, the way that you expect, like you answered me. When I showed you my manner of life, not what I believed, not the, not the rhythms, not the rituals, not the rules and the regulations, but I showed you my life, the way of life, you answered me. You didn't condemn me, you didn't push me out, you didn't destroy me, you answered me. And in that answering, the psalmist assumes that there's a way of faithfulness, right? That there is a discerning that happens, that he discerns false ways, because the Lord graciously teaches him his way, and that he chooses a way of faithfulness, a way that can be chosen, can be run in. Don't you love that language? I can run in. I will run in the way of your commandments. Not I will run in your commandments. I'll run in the way of your commandments, the life that's birthed from this way you've organized and spoken order into the world. I will run in. And why will I run in? Because my heart is set free. Why can we run in this way? Because Jesus has given every, us everything for life and godliness. Right? Our hearts have been freed from, as Peter would say in the, in the first chapter, that our hearts have been freed from the corruption that is in the world because of desire. Our hearts have been freed from that thing that entangles us and it leads us into false ways. And so... There is a way of living that Peter assumes they will have to choose. The psalmist assumed it. That it, it's, it's an, it is one thing to acknowledge that the way of God is better, but there's also a reality of having to choose to follow that life. And Peter knows that there's, there's difficulty in making that choice. Right? That there's difficulty in making that choice. We, the air we breathe, the world that we live in, to some degree, muddles the difference between the choice that we're trying to make. Not only is it that we get, um, um, in our own selves, we, we kind of get pulled away into ways that are off of God's way, 
But the, the, the air that we breathe, even as the people of God, sometimes gets the ways all kind of mixed up. Muddies the waters. I mean, that's, that's essentially what Chaz talked about last week, right? When, how Peter ends the first chapter. He's like, listen, I've given you this kind of very straightforward and foundational and fundamental, like, this is what it looks like to live on Jesus. Like, real simple. Not a, not a lot to figure out, like in a language that is, the people would have understood with references, cultural references that they would have hit them right at their hearts. He's really trying to make it super clean and simple for them. And then he says, hey, but listen, like, Jesus, Jesus is completely different. Right? We saw Jesus. Unlike the, the clever myths that Chaz talked about last week, like, unlike these cleverly designed and crafted stories, these foundational stories of your, of your reality um, that form how you interact in the world, unlike these, we didn't, we didn't make these up. Not only did we not, did we not make these up, as if it's that we crafted the stories, but Jesus is not a myth. Jesus is not a story that helps us see, like, and capture some of these bigger realities of the world that we talk about. He is reality. There is a difference between Jesus and all the other stories that we tell. All the other stories that we long for and we like. Like, we were actually talking about this at Guys Night on, uh, on Wednesday with some of the guys in our gospel community. And listen, there's a reason that um, stories, like, and I'm gonna, we're just going to get a little nerdy, and so forgive me because this is, I know this is not true of everybody. Um, but there's a reason why stories like The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings resonate with us, or even some degree Marvel Comics and the, the timeline of the Marvel comic the movies. Like, there's a reason, there's a resonation there. Or Harry Potter, I know that may add a few more people into the, to the mix. Like, if you want to be Hermione or, or Harry or whatever, right? Like, there's... There's a reason these stories resonate with us, right? There's a, heck, there's a reason the stories of Hercules resonate with us, and, and um, Artemis, and Poseidon, and um, um, uh, Odysseus, and all these stories resonate with humanity and have resonated with humanity for generations. Because in some ways, they tell truth. In some ways, they speak true things. They, in some ways, they help us kind of see the world that we live in for what it is. But they're always kind of at, an, at a blur, right? Like it's always told in mystical things, in mystic ways, in separation from like actual life. Like to some extent we kind of know that, that some of these things and these stories aren't meant to be taken literally, right? All those kind of things. Like as much as some of us are going to go to Harry Potter world at some point and try to make it literal, right? Um, like we know Star Wars, this may be offensive, is not real, right? We know that, okay? Um, but... But there's something in it that resonates. And part of the reason it resonates, especially for those that know the gospel and know the stories, because there's lots of little truths in it, right? There's lots of the realities that, that there is this kind of epic good versus evil, and that there is this need for self-denial in order for us to be able to, to get to the place where we can um, um, overcome the things that hold us back. There is this hero's journey that we all take to some degree. But what Peter says in, in the first, uh, the end of chapter 1 is like, but Jesus tells a completely different story than that. It's not the hero's journey. Like he doesn't give us in veiled ways what speak to a little bit of truth. He gives us the truth. He is the revelation and light of truth. You do not know yourself or what it means to be human apart from him. That's what Peter says when he calls himself a slave in verse 1, chapter 1. 
We don't know ourselves apart from Jesus. We can figure out our world without the myth. We'll end up telling some different ones, right? I mean, that's what every culture does. We try to explain the, both the positives and the difficulties of life through story. But Jesus is more than a story. Peter said it already. He's a person. A person with power and a person who makes promises. And because of those promises and his power, we are able to live in a way that while there's parallels to the myths and the stories that are told, there's always some point of conflict with the stories that are told around us. And that's where the rub happens, right? Because it's not that the story of Jesus is so dissimilar, the story of our scriptures are so dissimilar, it's because they're so alike the other stories that the differences matter the most. It's not because they're so different, the origin stories of our faith, the stories of Jesus are so different than the hero stories and the cultural mythic stories that we tell ourselves and have told ourselves for generations, is that they're so similar but slightly different that the differences matter the most. And so Peter understands that there's something about myth that speaks truth to him. But he says at the end of chapter 1, that if we're to, to get to be ones who are planted next to the stream of life, who grow up into the fullness of fruit that bear fruit in every season, there is no dead season, there is no fruitless season, but there is this life eternal season. If we're going to be that, we have to see that Jesus and, as, as Chaz mentioned last week, and the stories of our scripture tell a true story, a truer story. Not, not completely in contradiction to, but kind of sideways. At moments where instead of running parallel, as if like you could just go into a Greek culture and tell the same story as you go into an, uh, um, an, an East Asian culture or into a South American culture or into a, a modern Western culture and tell stories that are pretty parallel to one another. The Jesus story, while it seems to run along that line, cuts it across. It cuts across it. And so, but the problem is, because it cuts across it, and because the cutting across is somewhat subtle, um, we've got to pay a lot of attention to who we follow. We have to pay a lot of attention to who we follow. Listen, I'm, um, chapter 2 of Second Peter is, even as Karen read it, like I'm sure it made us a little uncomfortable, Right? Like, and what we're about to get into in a few moments with angels being uh, chained in Tartarus and Noah being rescued and Sodom and Gomorrah being um, uh, um, made for, uh, for um, uh, extinction is the term used, um, which, is, which is a pretty big term, right? Um, we're going to get into some things that seem pretty harsh and it's pretty weird and pretty strange. But listen, Peter is speaking to a people who this is the way in which they kind of know the world through stories like this. And so what Peter is going to be doing, what he's going to help us do, is he's going to help us see that, yes, we live in these stories, and Jesus gives us a different story, but the trouble that we face comes when we kind of mingle these stories together. The most difficult thing to our reality as um, ones who want to walk in Jesus is not the fact that we live in a world where there's other stories, Peter's going to show us that that's the way it's been from, from the beginning. Like that's, That was the lie that was told in the garden that perpetuated throughout. That's not really the trouble. The trouble is, are we discerning? Are we following people that are telling that story or telling the story of Jesus? 
Are we ones who can discern these things? So listen, we're about to jump in into Peter chapter 2. In the first three verses that, um, that Karen read for us, Peter kind of, he unmasks, unveils um, this truth, that the thing that is in most opposition to the men and women of faith, building on the foundation of faith in Jesus, is actually these false prophets, false teachers from within. He's going to unmask this. Notice, he could have gone anywhere in this, right? He could have gone back into culture and into things of culture, but he assumes that the most difficult thing will be you and I following people who speak on God's behalf or try to tell us stories about God and about the world in ways that aren't, that are parallel to Jesus, but not letting Jesus directly shape their way. And listen, as one who's teaching, that carries a lot of weight, right? Like, so, so like he's speaking to teachers, and we'll notice that he's speaking to the um, expectation that teachers will come. He's not actually speaking to directly to any particular teacher. But he assumes that this will be the case, because this has been the case. This will be the case for his followers, because it's been the case always. Let's jump right into it in 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among you... And he's connected it back in, so like in the translation up here, he said Old Testament, just to make it explicit. He's just come off this idea of Scripture, the stories of Scripture, this foundational reality of how God's been working from the beginning of the world, through the people of God, in the world, through the Scriptures, right? And so he says, listen, false prophets arose among the people of God in the Old Testament. This is nothing new. This is the air that we breathe. Ever since God has spoken To humans, at the very beginning of creation, there have been those who, on behalf of God or manipulating God, have spoken the words of God to manipulate. Right? I mean, whether that's Satan in the garden, whether that's Cain, um, whether that's um, Lamech, whether that's the, the Nephilim, whether that's on and on and on, right? Like every story, there's, pe- there's these people who will speak on behalf of God and speak ways of God that are twisting. He's like, listen, this is the way the world has been. And so expect that to be true of what's happening to you. So, but false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. So he assumes that there will be people who are going to try to say things to you that are not true. And before we get into the details of that, let's also like expect this. So there's an assumption that, that Peter's making here by pointing this out, that you will be able to discern these people that you are responsible to discern these people. He's assuming, again, everything in chapters 2 and 3 have to be read through the first, the first chapter of the book, right? Like, you can't just take this into the pocket. Like, Peter has said all these things that are true of you. You've been given everything you need for life and godliness, so you supplement your faith. Not your teachers supplement your faith. Not your leaders supplement your faith. You do everything to supplement your faith. To pursue with excellence this thing you've been called to and been gifted in Jesus. To, to have a knowledge of who God really is and how God really operates in the world. And from that, to have self-control and perseverance that leads to a just way of life that creates familial affection and perpetuates love in the world. Like, that's what you're called to do. But there'll be those who try to lead you in a different way. So you have been given that. So the reason he's pointing this out isn't just to say, hey, these things exist. It's for you and I to take responsibility for those things. To not be like the people of Israel at the mountain in Exodus 19 who refused to go up into the presence of God and just let Noah go for them. Not Noah, 
Moses. <laughs> that would be strange. That would, but um, but um, to let Moses go up for them, who did not want to take responsibility for their relationship with God, who did not desire to have that kind of relationship with God, and was satisfied with letting others be the ones who have that for them. So as we read this, there's going to be an, an abundance of condemnation for these teachers, and rightly so. In some ways, Peter is coming back into the Old Testament tradition of what the, pro, the true prophets did in the Old Testament and condemning the false prophets, right? He points these things out. He demeans their, rea- their character. He demeans their teaching. He does all these things to help the people see that you're being gullible and irresponsible in following them. So stop it. Don't be that. You have something truer, and he's already told us what the truer is, is Jesus, right? Okay? So we read this, and we read this not as, oh, look at them over there, look at what they're doing, or I can't believe. It's we read this as Jesus has given us a way to see this truth. We read this as they, we read, read, read this as ones who have been both gullible, but also who ones who God expects us to not be gullible which is pretty cool, right? That God would expect us and assume that we don't have to be gullible. We don't have to follow these teachers. Just as the psalmist prayed, we can tell God our ways. And in the ways that God's given us, the way of faithfulness that we know, the way of truth that we know in Jesus, we can discern false ways. And we can choose the way of the Lord. Okay, so false prophets arose at one time. They're going to rise among you. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to secretly or slyly slip in destructive schools of thought. Now, your translation probably says heresies, right? Whose translation doesn't say heresies? Anybody? When we think of heresy, what do we tend to think of? A doctrine, right? So so that that idea of, of heresy as doctrine, a wrong doctrine, is relatively new in human history. So when this was written, the idea... Heresy did not have a positive or negative connotation. It was simply a way of saying a school of thought. And so, unintentionally, when we use the word heresy in our translation, we tend to run to doctrine. But what he's saying, what Peter's saying here, is just a way of thinking. That there are those who will slyly come in, who will slyly slip in destructive ways of thinking about the world. Ways of thinking about God. Ways of thinking about your place in God, with God. And so it's not a directly errant doctrine, which of course it will lead to a directly errant doctrine at some point, right? If you flesh out all the way. But they could actually hold to really true doctrine, but the way in which they go about living that doctrine, applying that doctrine, letting that doctrine shape their life is destructive, is off. Instead of healthy doctrine... They're ones who teach something that is, as Peter will show us in a little bit, um, that just feeds the things that they're actually after. And so, again, they'll come in with this destructive schools of thought. So, so what will it destroy? It will destroy our relationship with God, destroy our relationship with others, our relationship with the world. There's some translations that, um, um, as they talk about this, this kind of text, they talk about this idea, what's trying to be captured here, is this... Um, um, basically, they create conflict. They dissolve and create division. Encourage continuous division. 
the ways in which they, their way of thought, perpetuates divisiveness, perpetuates separation, right? Which is opposite of what Jesus prayed for us, right, at the end of his life, right? That we would be one as I and the Father are one. And so it's destructive because it doesn't actually bring people into unity with the Father and one another. Their way of thought brings people out of unity with God and one another. And there'll be ones who do this. And how do they do this? By denying the master. By refusing the master. Again, we tend to read the word deny as this doctrinal denyment. But that's not the word. The word literally means to say no to. Say no to their master, Jesus. Say no to the one who owns them, who shapes them, who said, this is the way that I've given you, the way of life, the excellency that I've given you, my glory and excellencies. Chapter one, what has Jesus given us? What has he called us to? His own glories and excellencies. I've given you this and you said no. You said no to the way of life, this way of being human that I have given you through me. Again, Peter uses the term master here, the one master who, um, who, uh, who has bought them. Going back into to chapter 1, verse 1, this idea that he calls himself a servant, which really is, a, again, a terminology for slave, and we understand why we don't use, continue to translate that term the same way. But it, it's this idea of being completely owned, utterly, utterly at the um, identity, origin, future, everything, Controlled by, owned by, possessed by the master. There's something about the way in which these false teachers live that says, I don't want to be owned by Jesus. That his way, whatever he gives me, is not enough. I'm not satisfied with it. I want more. It's not that dissimilar from Genesis 3, right? Right? Where the enemy comes, to the serpent comes to Eve, and it's like, hey, listen, there's more out there if you just kind of get out of this control of God. If you just, if you just take a bite of what, this, what he said not to take a bite of, like, you'll see that the, there's more to life than what he has for you. That, that's kind of what's happening here, right? They come in, and their destructive ways are basically they are not satisfied with the way of Jesus. That Jesus' way of life, his person, his promises, his power, the way in which he lived, what he did on the cross and his resurrection, what he calls us to in his resurrected body is not enough for them. There's more. They want more. They want something else. And let's be honest. How many of us live that way? I know none of us here would say we want more than that, right? Like, but don't we? Are we satisfied with Jesus? Like the way of Jesus, that, that life in its fullest for us here in Dallas at this time and place in history, for us individually and collectively, is enough. Do we believe that? Peter says there will be ones who slip in this divisive, destructive schools of thought, refusing the master who purchased their freedom. Well, one commentator um, um, notes that both in the term slave that Peter uses in chapter 1, verse 1, and in here, the idea of being bought is, is this kind of redemptive deal of bought into freedom, which the psalmist would say is true, right? Like, I can follow the way, I can run in the way, because my heart has been set free. 
that we've been set free from the things that bind us, that being, being owned by Jesus is not binding, it's actually freeing. And they bring upon themselves imminent destruction. And we'll talk about that in a minute because, let's be honest, does it seem like it's imminent? But we'll get into that. Don't worry, Peter will explain that for a second in, in a minute. He says, there's these false teachers that come in. This is going to be your problem. They're going to deny the way of Jesus, not be satisfied with the way of Jesus. They're going to bring in ways of thinking that add to the way of Jesus, that can confound the way of Jesus with, with the world. And here's how we know it. And that many will follow their ways of unprovoked violence. And many will follow their ways. Listen, Peter knows, he's been there. He's a human. He lives in this world. He knows that this reality and this teaching, this idea that there's more than what Jesus has for us, Jesus is a good starting place. Jesus is a good, he gets us in the right spot. He gets us to a good place. He's still the thing that we orient us around. But there's a way of living that we don't have to live in the way that Jesus gives us to live. That's attractive. That's easier. That's natural. So many will follow their ways. And it, listen, in your translation, it probably says slander. The idea of, is wantonness, or not slander, but sensuality, is wantonness. It's this idea of brutality that often has this sexuality kind of component to it. This like taking what we long for and lust for and going and grabbing it in the most violent and defiling ways. And that, because there's no kids in here right now, violence and sex are always related, right? Like, I mean, just think of the movies, the movie world. Like, like think of even horror movies or action movies. Like, violence and sex go hand in hand in every culture, including our own culture. And that's what he's saying. Like, they're driven by the very things that keep culture moving. The very things that the world longs for. So he's kind of exposing that what they're after is not actually different. And the way in which they're going about it doesn't get them anything differently because it's the same thing as the world around them. And you're attracted to this wanton violence, this unprovoked violence, this, this going and taking what, what, um, what you want. Whether that violent be physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual, however it is, this is the way he describes it. And again, he describes it in this way that's meant to shock us a little bit. To help us see like that what drives a way of teaching that's outside of the way of Jesus is really kind of despicable. It's just despicable. Because none, none of us would say, hey man, if, this, if there was somebody teaching sensuality and wantonness and licentiousness, man, we would, we would run far away from that, right? It would be gross to us. But Peter's saying, no, no, that's actually what it is that they're teaching. And look, the last half of chapter 2, he'll get into how that is. But he's saying, this is what's driving them. This is what they're after. And they're perpetuating that cycle that the world has been after from the very beginning. They're continuing to move the, the mythic story forward over and over again. They're not, they're going parallel. They're not going counter to the stories of the world. And many will follow their ways of unprovoked violence. And because of them, the way of truth will be slandered, blasphemed, made less of, made to be untrue. Because of them, 
because of their teaching, the way of Jesus will be made fun of, made little of, looked down upon. Because of that. Because of the popularity of those within the faith following those things, the actual way of Jesus is blasphemed. I mean, that's a pretty, those are pretty bold statements, aren't they? Like, that, that there's this reality of our collective nature, even as Christians, that we follow more in droves ways of teaching that are kind of like Jesus, but not Jesus, than Jesus, the way of Jesus himself. But again, how many of us would say that we've, we've been there? Like, we are there. We've, we've followed we're a part of the group and not a part of just the ones who get it right. And then Peter, he keeps going. He says, listen, like their, their way is, it's, it's, it's in step with the, the mythic story. It's perpetuating the mythic story. It's actually not showing us any different way to be human. And because of that, it makes the, the true story of Jesus this kind of silly thing. This thing that's not worth going after. Not worth giving your life for. Not worth, as Peter had said in the first chapter, um, um, making br- like every effort to bring into the reality of existence in your life. And then he says, and here's, and here's what happens when you follow this. And so he moves kind of from what they're doing into the implications for us. And in their greed... They will exploit you. Their greed means, in the actual translation, is covetousness. In their coveting, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? Like the heart of desire, like where desire comes from is the desire for others and for what others have is for another. In that desire, in the, in the desire that corrupts the world, 1 Peter 1, they exploit you. Literally, they make merchandise out of you. You're made into cattle. You're made into something to be bought and sold, to be used and to pilfered. Like, listen, we get that that's kind of a part of, of, of modern capitalism, right? Like we all have apps to sell everything about us, that we are the batteries, like we are the, we are the, um, the, uh, the resource and all that kind of stuff. We kind of get that and maybe even kind of expect that. Well, what else would be the case, right? But this isn't outside of the church. This is inside. And again, there is no difference. You're being used. And listen, what has Jesus, what has Peter said already that's true of you? That you're not merchandise. Right? That you've obtained a faith of equal and precious measure with ours. You've been gifted this life in Jesus. A life which is meant to be fruitful and and effective. A life that is more than being something to be bought and sold. Something to be pilfered and used for somebody else's gain. There's, There's more for you. So, discern these teachers. They, they make merchandise out of you with false words. In other words, it's word, literally the translation is um, stories that they fashion, stories that they craft. Again, connects back to chapter 1, verse 16, cleverly devised. They tell you the same story 
of the world. They let Jesus run parallel to Harry Potter and to, to uh, the Avengers and to, to Zeus and Hercules and Poseidon and all these stories, the American dream, the pursuit of technology, the desire for more, whatever it is. But they never let Jesus come in conflict with them. They never let Jesus come in conflict with those stories to pull back what is hidden in those stories. That this thing that we think of as this, of, of life as a pursuit, as Chess talked about last week, of honor, of good, of, of, of um, success, this thing that drives us that we should achieve for, and the reality of also striving against others that are against us, this movement of vengeance, right? And this perpetuation of antagony in life, that life is difficult and a struggle. Like, that, that exists not because it's true, but because we choose to live in it. That, that cycle of us pursuing what is good, fighting against what is bad, only to keep struggling for the same thing over and over again, is not actually true. It's simply a way that we've chosen. That Jesus says, yes, there are difficulties in the world, as Chaz read for us last week. You will have trials and tribulation in the world, but I've overcome the world so you can have peace. In the midst of... Difficulty and trials. There's peace. Life is not this constant and consummate struggle for the things that we want and against the things that are against what we want. That is not what life really is. And it's never been that way. In fact, it's so much so it's never been that way. This is why Peter goes into the rest of chapter 2. And he wants us to see that there's a great hope in the fact that the world isn't this way. And it's never been this way. In fact, the world is a different way. Jesus tells us and shows us not just in his life and salvation, but the fact that he's a part of this historic thing called the Bible, the scriptures, God's story. That life has never been this way. And that God has always been for us and not against us. We keep reading in verse 4. So Peter says at the end of verse 3, there's condemnation from long ago uh, for these teachers, these false teachers, these ones. Listen, they're going to get their comeuppance, right? They're going to get what's coming to them. And it's not sleepy. God's not like just like letting them rule the world and control everything. Listen, you don't have to look long at church history to see how true this is. How nothing in the, nothing, no kind of teaching or training or organization or system that tries to build for itself a way of life that is even just parallel to Jesus but not in line with Jesus, it never lasts. Ever. In any way. Ever. And there may be a lengthy period of time in which it seems to have influence and authority, but it never lasts. There's always two things happening concurrently. There's always a deconstruction, a being destroyed by the very things that they're after, whether that's power and influence, the church is after those things. Or there's, they're destroyed by the, the lust of celebrity in our common day, the gain of influence and whatever that may be. And at the same time, as there's this being consumed by the things that they're consuming, because they're caught up in the cycle of the world, there's also this remnant that God is continuously raising up who believe what Peter said in the first chapter and who are showing a way that is different. That's always true about the church. It's always been true about the people of God. That God is persevering and raising up a remnant who see a different way, 
who get a different way, not as in some sort of like high and mighty self-righteousness, but they're like, it's Jesus, it's the way of the gospel, it's just different. It's always happening. Always happening. So we can have hope, because this is the way the, the history is actually played out. In chapter, in verse 4, it says this. It says, listen, this reality of what God is doing for you in the midst of the difficulty that's going to be to be built well on the foundation of Jesus is this. That if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So Peter is about to unleash this raveling roll of things of, that show that God is not idle, that the, this is not the way of the world. The way of the world is not the twisted way that leads to destruction and continues the cycle of destruction, of covetousness, of greed, of using people, treating people as merchandise, all that, that that is not the perpetual movement of the world. But the perpetual movement of the world has always been God restraining and lifting up, God restraining and persevering, God restraining and rescuing. And that is the actual way the world works. And so he tells this first story, which may seem a little odd to us. There's, it's kind of a, um, referenced in Genesis chapter 6, where the Nephilim, these angelic beings, come and they mate with men and women of the earth and to produce like um, giants, like you know, the one that David slayed, you know, maybe kind of along those lines. But they produce these giants. But the big thing that happens in this is that these giants, and these, these, they become kings and leaders of the people, um, they create a world that is violent, utterly violent, that is ruled by passions, by longings for things, and taking those things from other people, and doing so with a violent way. Like, that's what Genesis 6 paints. And then the, the, the Deuteronomic, like, um, um, it's apocryph apocryphal, I don't know if that's safe to say in this context, but apocryphal um, um, scripture, um, First Enoch, which is not a part of our Bible, but is a considered by the church a historical book, like, and this is what Peter's quoting from, it tells the story in more detail, that these angels were actually, um, actually put in a place like Tartarus. He's using Greek language because he's speaking to Greeks. Just like their gods were created, that God took these godlike things, these godlike beings, and placed them in chains. Why? Because they were creating violence. Because in their pursuit of what they desired, they made merchandise out of people. Because they perpetuated this cycle of wanting things, a lust for things that led to a denial of God's authority, that led to the violence and the destruction of people. And so God changed them up. And listen, just that one quick sentence would have, for, the, um, for Peter's readers, kind of set their minds flowing in all kinds of directions, because this is the foundational story of their myths, right? Like, Zeus came because he put the Titans in Tartarus, right? So, like, Peter is specifically using language to help them connect, like, oh, this is kind of like our story, but hold on, this is not how our story played out. Our story played out, they didn't play out to be, to be kept for destruction because they were wantingly violent. It wasn't... Zeus didn't put the Titans in Tartarus because, because they were being mean or, or unrighteous or unfair. He did it because he wanted power. Because he lusted for things. Because he longed to have what they had. And so he took it. Like already their mind would be like telling a different story, right? 
And so Peter continues. He says, like, not only is that true, but in verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah. The flood story, right? It's a story we know a little bit better. A story, again, that would have been related to some of the flood stories in the Greek, the Greek world, too. But he calls Noah this. He calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, a herald of righteousness with seven others. In other words, he's saying, hey, listen, like if God, if God didn't just take and destroy those things which were creating, lock up, chain, bound, those things which are leading to the destruction of humanity, he also persevered those who were speaking the truth, who were preaching the right way to relate to God and others, even if they were a minority. Seven others. The whole ancient world. Seven others. Right? They got preserved, preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others. When he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Literally, the, the ungodly, that word means, um, it means those who had no respect for the authority of God. Had no respect for the supremacy of God. That had no respect for who, the, who really spun the world around, right? It's not just those who, who don't think. It's like this idea that God doesn't, there was just, God doesn't matter. And so if God didn't, if he, if he kind of confined the ones who caused it, if he persevered the ones who were living against it and flooded, wiped away those who had no desire to be a part of it, and then he keeps going, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making an example of them as what is, what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so if he, if he says, hey, listen, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, these places that were um, super attractive, right? Like when Lot sees the, the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah when he's with Abraham uh, on the edges, like he recognizes they have the best of life. Like, they figured life out in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he go, he chooses them, right? Instead of staying with Abraham, instead of being in a place outside of those cities, right? And in those cities, in the cities that feel like they've got everything figured out, what do we discover in the story of Lot, right? We just discover that they are driven by their lustfulness for things, including people. People have become things. They want people. And they will destroy people. They're repeating the same cycle, right? They're the epitome of this same cycle. And listen, if God didn't spare the meaning, like at some point, if God bound and persevered, if God washed out and then allowed to raise up and then destroyed, like this is the way in which God's going to work. There is a movement of history. But notice that what God does in the midst of moving towards this destruction of the ways that are against his way. Notice what he does. This is really incredible, right? In uh, verse 7, it says, if he rescues righteous Lot. So he preserved Noah because Noah was a herald, right? Like Noah preached the truth in the midst of the difficulties as a minority within the majority. Like he's, he did that. Do we think of Lot doing that? <laughs> Like, do, listen, like, we, maybe we want to aspire to be Noah. Maybe we don't. Maybe it's easy for us to dismiss that we're not like Noah. Like, that's great for Noah. Like, he could do that. I mean, he's like the, one of the founding fathers of our faith, right? But let's be honest, we can all relate to Lot. Who sees the things of the world, how it's got it right, 
It's like, listen, I can be righteous in there. I can go in that and I can live well in there. I know, I know we're called out, Abraham. Like, but listen, like, like our calling out can still let us play in this world, right? And so Lot is called righteous, which he's not in our scriptures. Again, this comes from, from um, an apocryphal kind of understanding but a Jewish, the, in Jewish history. Um, but the idea here, and listen to what he says. He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct. Same word, that, that unprovoked violence that has a sexual nature to it or um, um, at least a connotation to it. Distressed by that of the wicked. For as a righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. In other words, there's, there's this looking into Lot of like he didn't, unlike the people that were kind of flooded over maybe, if you just want to do a compare contrast. There's something about like what called Lot into that place was like, yeah, I really wanted the things that they were after and I thought I could have both. I could have the things that they were after and the distinction of being called out by God. And he gets in there and he finds that his soul is tormented all the time by everything around him, by the lawlessness around him, by the deeds going on around him. Like, but why is his soul tormented? Because he's put himself in a place of torment, right? He's put himself in a place of torment. So it recognizes two things, like that he longs for this way, and yet he struggles to live this way. And so he's tormented. He's confused. How many of us in our life of faith has ever felt that? That we feel tormented and confused because we live in Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? We live in the world that seems to be, the lawless deeds seem to be against the very thing that we know in our hearts and our souls is the right way. And what does it say that God does for Lot? It said in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials. That this has been what God has been doing forever. That he preserves, that he rescues, that he bounds, that he moves towards destruction, that he preserves those who follow the way. He, he rescues those of us who are tormented in the way. Because, because we've all prayed of false teachers, because we look more like the world around us. Even though we know the world around us, the things that our world values is different from the thing that is Jesus. And so God rescues And God knows how to rescue the godly from their trials, verse 9, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. This is the world that we live in. That God preserves us and rescues us. That God bounds and puts boundaries upon all those things that would lead to a way against human flourishing in His authority, in His control, right? That is the world that we're in. We're not in a world that perpetually is moving towards destruction in the sense of like it's going gonna, it's gonna to just keep moving down, 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 spiral, spiral, spiral. We're in the very opposite. Where the Lord has been consistently binding up, moving towards punishment, persevering, rescuing. And as we'll see, and as we saw in, in chapter 1, for the sake of people within it to flourish. And there is a real reality that the cross of Jesus Christ changed how this all plays out showed what it looks like 
for the world not to move in some sort of progressive direction of utopia, nor in a direction of some sort of of self-destructive progression into utter annihilation. But rather, like a mustard seed, the kingdom of God has been growing up and growing up, growing up, growing up, growing up, growing up, growing up. So it becomes the greatest tree in the garden. That's the world that we live in. So, if we want to experience the fullness of that reality, we've got to be careful who we listen to. We've got to be careful, be careful who we listen to in this, kit, this, state, this sense. That we have to ask all the time, is this the way of Jesus or another way? Jesus can be used in all the language. All the doctrines can be right. Again, he is not talking about wrong doctrine. He is talking about a wrong way of living in the world in light of Jesus. I want to go a little bit further, but I don't think we've got time for it, so we'll do that, we'll do that next week. But let's do this. Let's just for a moment confess a couple things. So if you take a minute, just close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And in your heart and in your minds, I'm going to say a few phrases and I just want you to repeat them to yourself, right? My soul clings to dust. We need life according to your word. My soul clings to things that fade, created things, things that perpetuate untruth. Light my life with the word. Put false ways far from me. And graciously show me Jesus. Put false ways far from me. And graciously show me Jesus. I will run in the way and the truth and the life where my heart is free. Father, forgive us where we have been purveyors of false things, false ways that seem like they were so close to you in your way. We're not Jesus. Forgive us where we have 
Let our ears be tickled by, um, by things that we want, but things that aren't the things that you desire. Where we have settled for letting others show us your way rather than letting Jesus be the way. Thank you for persevering and rescuing. In the midst of trials and tribulations, help us to be free. In Jesus' name, amen. my heart, Lord. Here's my